everyone. Welcome back to Strong Reception. Thanks so much for joining me today. There is a giant municipal primary underway in New York City right now, encompassing literally hundreds of candidates who are vying to be the next nominees for mayor, for public advocate, for city controller, for borough president in every one of the city's five boroughs, and for lots and lots of open city council seats. 35 of the 51 seats in city council are up for election right now, with no shortage of candidates for each and every one. The primary election is on June 22nd, with early voting running June 12th through June 20th. Uh, May 28th is the deadline to apply for your registration if you haven't done so already. And this June will mark the first time that there will be a citywide rollout of ranked choice voting. That's a brand new thing for New York City, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. Today's episode will be part of a series in which I interview candidates who are running in the Democratic primary to be the next city council member for New York's 37th council district in Brooklyn. That covers parts of the neighborhoods of Bushwick, Cypress Hills, East New York, and Brownsville. Last year, this district was left without a council member for almost an entire year after Rafael Espinal stepped down early to take a job in the nonprofit sector and after a special election to replace him was cancelled by the governor in the midst of a giant whirlwind of confusion and chaos during the first wave of COVID-19. The current city council member for District 37 is Dharma Diaz, a Democrat who took office in January of this year after running unopposed in the primary election last year, a controversial situation that resulted from a number of questionable decisions on the part of the governor and the courts, and from Dharma Diaz herself, and from the powerful Brooklyn Democratic Party. My guest today is Rick Echevarria, who ran in that city council race last year and was booted off the ballot as a result of some of those questionable decisions. He is running once again right now in Council District 37, and full disclosure, I live in this district, so getting someone into office who cares about democracy and how we vote, that's a cause that's pretty dear to my heart. So Rick Echevarria is one of seven, possibly eight, candidates currently running in this race. He grew up in Bushwick, the neighborhood I currently live in, and has worked throughout his career as an advocate for greater housing equity for the people in this area. He founded the Bushwick Housing Independence Project in 2003, which advocates for tenants' rights and against landlord abuses and mortgage fraud, and he helped to organize tenants in over 100 buildings. He formerly served as the director of the Tenant Interim Lease Program in the city's Department of Housing Preservation and Development. He claims he was fired from heading that program in 2016 when he blew the whistle on corruption within the department. Housing equity is still at the heart of his campaign for city council, and I'm honored to have him on Strong Reception today to talk about how voting impacts all of these issues. Rick Echevarria, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Eli. It's my pleasure to be here. Great. So um, so you grew up in this district, born and raised. Uh, yours was one of the first families to move into the Hope Gardens Housing Project, according to your uh, website. Um, you've campaigned for housing equity for people in this area throughout your career. So when you talk to voters in our district, who do you hear from the most and what are the issues that come up again and again? So yes, I grew up in Bushwick. I, we, my family was one of the first families to move into 
the Hope Gardens development in the early 1980s. So even throughout the COVID period, the the ongoing number one issue uh, in the district is housing related, uh, the the burdens and pressures that that families and individuals feel from a very intense uh, local housing market that is pressuring a lot of people out of Bushwick specifically. Okay, and who is it you're you're hearing from the most when people reach out to you or or tell you what's going on? Who is it you? Where where are they and who are they? Senior citizens, mostly, and in, in, right in the Hope Gardens development um, around the conditions with the rehab, uh, the RAD rehab of the Hope Gardens development uh, during COVID, uh, causing disruption during, you know, uh, and noise um, mm-hmm. and debris and all of the related things um, during COVID. And then outside of uh, the whole, uh, the public housing development, the intensified pressure on seniors, and I, I call them young seniors, right? People in their 60s still who are in market uh, housing that's regulated but unsatisfactory in terms of the conditions, the declining conditions in the buildings, the lack of enforcement of the housing code where they live, leading to frustrations about them wanting to access senior housing. You know, there's a, there's a lot of angst there from our seniors in the in the district needing new senior housing. That's the most frequent complaint that I've seen over the last few months. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I want to start talking about voting in New York, which is uh, sort of mainly what I try to cover. Um, so what do you th- what do you think about the city's uh, rollout of ranked choice voting in this election? So just a quick uh, explanation for anyone who doesn't know, ranked choice voting is um, uh, going to be used in our citywide elections uh, for mayor, controller, public advocate, and um, borough presidents and city council races. And uh, New Yorkers will get to, uh, in the primary, pick up to five candidates in descending order of preference, or just choose one if they wish to. And it's a way to um, eliminate a situation where we get a, a winner who doesn't win with a majority. So often in New York, we end up with elected officials who win with just 30 or 40% of the votes, uh, sometimes much less in the case of special elections. And this is a a way to have um, what's called an instant runoff, where if there is no 50% or more majority winner in the first wave of voting, there's an instant runoff in which second choice candidates are tallied and the bottom choice candidates are eliminated eventually until one candidate comes out with 50% plus one vote so we can avoid people having to go to go back to the polls for runoffs. Um, so my question is, do you, do you think this is something that will benefit the people of, of our area? And what do you think is key about the rollout of ranked choice voting in New York and, and making sure people understand what, what it is? I'm an ardent supporter of ranked choice voting. I applaud the fact that we uh, can bring an end to our longstanding pluto- plutocratic system, right? Um, where we're voting in, uh, sorry, plural, pluralistic system, mm-hmm. where we're, we're voting pluralities into office. I 
do, however, you know, as a frequent critic of this administration, uh, I do recognize that there are limits to what was possible in the midst of COVID, uh, particularly with ranked choice voting, in my own uh, estimation. This you know, is a process that requires a, a shift in political culture right, and thinking and approach uh, at the voting booth that probably needs to play out over several elections cycles, in my view. I do think that the administration could have done uh, a much better job um, but in the midst of COVID, I think it's understandable that that hasn't been as um, effective or um, widespread as possible. Um, but, uh, you know, my strongest view on the point is that a lot of it is incumbent upon us as candidates to educate voters, which is what okay. we're supposed to naturally do. Um, it's kind of a, a process of... I liken it to trying to encourage people to vote generally, right? I think that's the administration's responsibility. Um, but getting them to the point where, you know, knowing that they can rank um, is, is a you know, big educational piece, but actually executing the rank, I think that's where the handoff is, right? There's a baton passing to the candidates. But you have to draw the interest. You have to make them interested in, in ranking the vote. And how are you um, trying to do that? Um, I <laughs> we have some strategies in place that I'm a little hesitant to to share publicly at this point. But I think it it, it takes you have to engage voters, right? um, and I think it also has imp- uh, my sense so far is that uh, it it really has an impact on you on the negative aspects of campaigning, right? The vitriol and the attacks and stuff, because you have to be conscious about, you know, you're going to have to win over some of your opponent's voters. right? Mm, yeah. Um, and because you're trying to maybe be someone's second choice, yeah. perhaps, you know, <laughs> that that's what the theory is that you might be campaigning to be, if not someone's first choice then someone's second or third choice. And you never know that could put you over the top in the runoff. Right. And I think in um, to some degree, uh, some of that negativity has uh, emerged early on in this race. Uh, and I'm glad I'm glad to say that I, I was not a part of any of it. Um, we are running on a single uh, the most important message uh, is an anti-corruption message. And we're trying to stick to that. Um, OK. And we think that, you know, that's the fundamental role of a city council person is to root out corruption in city government. So if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about what happened last year in this uh, same district for the city council race. Um, There was a lot going on. There was uh, legal battles over these petition challenges. You and four other candidates were disqualified from running after it was decided by the uh, New York Board of Elections that you hadn't gotten enough signatures or that signatures you had on your petition uh, didn't qualify. And the people who raised those objections were volunteers for Dharma Diaz's campaign. Dharma Diaz is also a handpicked candidate by the leadership of the Brooklyn Democratic Party. And it just didn't look good. Uh, just overall for you know New York's democracy, it just looked very shady, uh, for lack of a better word. The governor had been issuing these executive orders saying, 
uh, you only needed to get 30% of the usual required number of petition signatures to get on the ballot. The Board of Elections was saying, uh, no, that's not right. You needed 450, so booted everyone but Dora Diaz off the ballot because she had gotten more than everyone. But then uh, candidates appealed and went to the Brooklyn State Supreme Court, and a judge said, hey, this is COVID, and clearly 30, you, you all did get the required number, put you guys back on the ballot, and then Dharma Diaz's people sued again. It went to the appellate court, and the second department said, uh, actually, you all needed to get 270, not 450, and you guys still didn't get 270, so we're, we're kicking all of you off again. Does that sound right? Have I summarized that fairly correctly? Uh, mostly. I would say three quarters correct. So I, okay. I've, there's been a lot of bad journalism around the coverage of this particular aspect of the race uh, last year. So just to be clear, Dharma Diaz and I were the only two candidates who made the threshold of 450 signatures to get on the ballot. Okay. Um, I was kicked off for a procedural error. Uh, I was kicked off by the Board of Elections, not by um, Dharma challenging my petitions. Um, and that was because I was in quarantine, and that's a whole COVID-related story. Okay. Um, and I don't want to go into that. But I would say that there were a lot of shenanigans all around in the um, first phase of this uh, campaign um, on all sides, uh, except for me. Uh, I think the challenges were were unnecessary. Um, mm-hmm. I think they were uh, inappropriate. Um, but at the same time, um, on the other side, uh, my what I consider to be my opponents, my other opponents' supporters attempted to cancel the primary altogether. Bill de Blasio, the mayor and the campaign finance board, drafted a letter um, to the governor requesting that he cancel the primary. Basically, voters would have to vote in two separate elections on the same day for the same seat. Um, you know, rather than proposing canceling the special, they wanted to cancel the primary um, to benefit my opponent. Um, who I believe, you know, have the support of the de Blasio administration. And it wasn't done in a way like, you know, let's just hold one election and whoever made, you know, primary ballot or the special election ballot, let's just fold them into one. The letter explicitly requested that the primary be canceled and only the people that made the special election ballot be included on the ballot, which I thought interesting. And this would have disadvantaged anyone anyone who who was on track to make the ballot for the primary which was me and dharma diaz okay and this was all happening in the context of the beginning of COVID 19 when these decisions were made yes uh at the top like it was the first really scary wave sorry go ahead the first day of lockdown um was the march 20th was the day i filed my petitions and at the board of uh, elections. Um, so yeah, it was right at the heart of um, the crisis. Yeah. And we were the Board of Elections and Voting Rights Advocates, and we're trying to figure out how do we get people to vote without making them go to the polls and you know, worrying about, is New York set up for all the absentee ballots that we're going to get 
processed. Okay, so now that we've laid that groundwork, uh, what so what prevents this kind of thing from happening again? Well, I think the Brooklyn Democratic Party is committed to <laughs> challenging uh, candidates that oppose anyone that they're backing, right? They're any, any of the opponents of their chosen candidates. As a practice, I mean, they have a established operation. The way this stuff um, works is, you know, is the stuff that should be written in the book on on political history of New York City. But you know, it's a lot of um, paperwork, right? Just like not very computerized process of going, you know, line by line and knocking off signatures and. Um, it's like the quintessential image of like a backroom politics, you know, smoke-filled room and a bunch of people uh, <laughs> behind the, the Brooklyn Democratic Party just going through, you know, going through signatures of candidates that they oppose, which is pretty fascinating to me. On that note, a couple of months ago, Jamani Williams and some other people had, had filed a lawsuit asking if petition challenges can be halted. Uh, for this primary election, um, demanding an end to in-person petitioning and petition challenges during this ongoing COVID-19 crisis, because we still have to gather signatures to get on a ballot. You still have to do it in person. That's still the only way that's accepted. So uh, ju- a judge recently rejected uh, throughout the lawsuit saying, well, the number of um, signatures you have to get is still greatly reduced. So that should take care of the problem. You don't have to get as many signatures. The judge didn't see a need to cancel petition challenges or gathering petition signatures. Do you think that was a a right decision? No, I think that with COVID, um, you know, it's hard to impose it on on the courts. I think it should should have happened um, legislatively, but, you know, we had enough time probably, but it it didn't take place. Um, but yeah, I, I don't agree. We should we should have been out collecting signatures person to person in the middle of COVID. New York City has and New York State have adopted a lot of legislation since early 2019. We got early voting for the first time. We were one of the you know very few states that didn't have it, and a lot of other reforms uh, were passed as well, like pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds. But um, in terms of this stuff, this this sort of old school stuff that still remains and is still preventing the Democrat, excuse me, democratic process from rolling along to include more people, the For the People Act in Congress in Washington, HR one. Do you think this is something that could help New York as well if it passes, and do you think it has a chance of passing? Um, so I think that I'm encouraged by the fact that we have. Um, Democratic control of Congress. Um, that I, I'm, I'm very encouraged by the what the state has. I think we're playing catch up in New York State. Um, mm-hmm. My fundamental um, beef is that we need to begin to digitize some of these processes. Right? There are alternative ways to have people you know, support someone on a petition digitally to increase voter participation, registration and participation. So I'm encouraged. I think the bill will pass in Congress, um, but we really need to, in New York State, address some of these antiquated methods of um, our democratic processes. 
um, because uh, they're a little bit just insane. I agree. <laughs> I totally agree work, with that. Um, you know, signature matching and verification. Uh, I mean, we have systems. Uh, I often point, you know, I have a lot of beef about housing enforcement problems. And I point to, I typically tell people, you know, there are examples of the state and the city government interacting and functioning well, say around uh, enforcement of, you know, motor vehicle traffic violations, right? Uh, you got traffic down, uh, traffic ticket down a street and, you know, the state will suspend your license within any given number of days if you don't pay it, right? Like that's um, two levels of government working in tandem efficiently. <laughs> um, we don't see that in like housing policy or code enforcement. Um, and we certainly don't see that in our electoral processes and that needs to change. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think one thing that jumps to mind of uh, a unique thing about New York that we're still hanging on to um, that some people heartily support and some people are against is fusion voting, where uh, if you're running for office in New York, where I think we're the only state in the union that practices this, you can, uh, different parties can cross endorse a single candidate in a single race. So you could be running as a Democrat and you could also have an endorsement from, say, the Working Families Party, just as an, as an example, and be, appear on every appear multiple times on the ballot under different party lines. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, we are such a diverse city that I think it's fundamental that we have fusion voting. Okay. We will have to have some vehicle for expressing uh, their views, expressing the power and extent of their base of support for that view, um, their political ideology, um, and yeah, I mean, it's to me, it's just always been a part of New York, uh, the election system, and it, it should uh, continue to be. And the ultimate measure uh, should be how much uh, voter support you have. And I don't agree that things like what the governor did um, to the Working Families Party should be um, part of that process, a reactionary um, effort to raise the standard of votes required to uh, keep them <laughs> as a party. Well, he was mad at them because they backed Cynthia Nixon. Was that yes. was that the yeah. deal? Uh, the uh, allegedly <laughs> uh, his action was a uh, uh, result to them having backed Cynthia Nixon for governor. But then. But then they supported him in that race. Yeah. Well, that's I think that's the beauty of New York politics, right? You can, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think in the in the general election, yeah, um, they supported uh, Governor Cuomo. So, uh, yes, to me, that's where fusion voting just gets very confusing because for me, it like in my mind, it leads to more backstairs deals. I know the Working Families Party, their their goal is to pull more candidates toward the left and toward more progressive legislation. But I, 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 think, it, I think there's an element of confusion there for the voters. Well, I mean, because, you know, the pull factor um, isn't always just to the left, right? They could be pulled to the center based on the political reality, right? The governor won with 65% of the vote, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in some sense, pulling him 
uh, pulling them somewhat towards the center, right? Um, it happens. Uh, I feel that it's happening in my race. Um, How so? Well, I happen to have the perspective or position that I'm running against two machines. And so it's not just the Brooklyn Democratic establishment, um, but the way things are lining up on the other side, I mean, that's the very definition of a machine. Um, There are a lot of political interests uh, aligned one way um, that goes above and beyond the actual qualifications of the candidate, right? There are political interests unified in one way. And that typically happens when, you know, political pressure is put behind the scenes on certain entities to say, endorse this way or else, Mm -hmm. right? Um, When you see things stack up that way, that's to me the, you know, elemental makeup of a machine. So what we see in North Brooklyn is the emergence of the North Brooklyn machine, Right. The neo North Brooklyn machine, right? Um, are are you referring to the supporters of Sandy Nurse? Uh, yeah, I think the, the the large institutional backing there uh, should be cause for concern. Hmm. Right? We should ask questions about. Wait a second, um, who's pressuring who here? Right? Because the signs are there. To me, uh, anyone with um, significant political analysis skills would be able to ascertain that, okay, these are the signs and symbols of a, of a machine. Hmm. Only machines endorsed like this. That's interesting. You know, it's one more thing on fusion voting that always sort of gets my goat personally is uh, when we are going to the polls to vote for judges, which we, uh, there, we do have judicial elections here in New York City. Um, there's always someone who's running as a Democrat and a Republican and maybe a couple of other things. Uh, we had that in the last judicial election in my district. So what does that say about fusion voting? I think the case for judges is um, particularly um, concerning to me. Uh, I, 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 I think the whole judgeship situation is really what forms the, uh, a lot of the heart and base and power behind the Brooklyn establishment, um, the Democratic Party establishment politics. Mm-hmm. Court Street has been a place rife with a lack of judicial independence, um, corruption, cronyism, um, and we need to reform how we elect judges. That's a very controversial statement to many, but you should not become a judge just because you win a party's primary. Right. And fundamentally wrong with that. Right. And I'm the Brooklyn Democratic Party puts forward the nominees in a judicial election. Yes. In Brooklyn. Yes. And and from that point, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that person's going to be judge. Um, I, I mean, maybe we need an independent, you know, independent judges party emerging, hmm. um, but something, something needs to be done. Uh, it cannot continue uh, in the fashion that is continuing. And even, you know, it's a system that will sometimes lead even good people, good, good lawyers 
to seek its benefits because it's too easy, right? Hmm. You know, appeal to the powers that be of the Brooklyn Democratic Party and get on a pathway to a judgeship. And I, I don't think that's um, the type of judicial system and infrastructure that we want to have in place. And I think we're paying a price for it. Yeah. It's so interconnected. It's almost incestuous in a way. The party machinery putting forward certain candidates for office, including judges, and also ties into who gets um, appointed to the board of elections as well by the city council. Yes. Another entity that um, has its tentacles, It's the Brooklyn Democratic Party has um, too many tentacles into. Yeah. Um, so some news sites have covered the fact that um, citywide in the city council races, we've seen the emergence of some pretty giant super PACs supporting certain candidates' runs for office. Uh, in New York, we call them independent expenditures. And it'll be interesting to see if the For the People Act passes in Congress. One of the things that they are going to require is um, there may not be a money cap on what these super PACs can spend, but they'll be required to be much more transparent about who's funding them. And um, publicly traded corporations will have to get approval from shareholders and board of directors to uh, make these expenditures. Um, is there is there evidence of super PACs involved in this city council race? And if so, do you think, you know, what, what do we do about this? Um, I think that the, in this case, most of the political action committees are aligned mostly on one side in this race so far. Okay. Um, we should be really concerned with how those PACs begin to function together to determine or to attempt attempt to determine or predetermine the outcomes in our um, local elections. And, you know, beyond the spending, we should know specifically who, what are the, what are the demographics, right, behind some of the PACs um, and their spending, right? What's the mm-hmm. level, what's the level of African-American leadership or Latino leadership and PACs, whether they have, they be well-intentioned, right? Like pro-environmental PACs or pro-housing justice PACs, right? Like what, um, how do they reflect the values or diversity of the communities where they are endorsing and investing? And I think these are fundamental questions that we on the left uh, are very hesitant or um, unwilling to ask. And I think that working class residents of New York City, a lot of which, the majority of which tend to lean moderate, are asking those questions. Mm-hmm. And I think a race like mine, I think this is why I'm determined to, to maintain an independent candidacy, to make an authentic connection to the working class voters in this district. So they can ask those questions. Right? Who, who's you know what is what is the Brooklyn Democratic Party doing? Okay, what are the PACs doing? The small and the big ones, and who are they? Do they represent your values? You know, are they your neighbors, or are they trying to you know influence things um, from a distance without being subject to rigorous analysis analysis around you know diversity and and equity. Hmm. 
Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so if you want to learn more about Rick Echevarria's uh, campaign, you can uh, go to voterick2021.com and also his Twitter handle, voterick2021. Uh, any other information you would like uh, potential voters to know? Instagram, at voterick2021. And everyone around the city should support right now on Twitter, the Fair Pay for, number four, Home Care Act. Uh, hashtag fair pay for home care, which is uh, which would raise the salaries for home care workers across the city, uh, many of which uh, call the 37th council district home, and we need to uh, raise their salaries significantly. They earn on average $22,000 a year. The Fair Pay Act would raise that salary to $35,000 minimum. And we're fighting to uh, put pressure on the governor and the speaker, uh, Hasty, to Hasty to uh, to get that across the board for us. It's amazing to think that we want to raise the base pay to thirty five thousand a year, which seems like not even that much. And it's being deliberated right now, and they're fighting. You know, the the principal opponent to it are the lobbyists for the home care agency managers which is a pretty um, startling thing, right? Well, Rick, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, good luck. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Rick Echevarria, who is running for city council in the 37th district in Brooklyn. I'm so glad that he and I got to talk about the mechanics of how we vote in this city, uh, which affects pretty much every aspect of life in New York. Uh, I've got more candidate interviews coming up for those who care about this race. And if you don't care, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Stay tuned for my interview with Sandy Nurse, as well as my conversation with Mizba Abdeen, both of whom are running in this race. You know how not to miss it? Just hit the subscribe button next to Strong Reception on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying Strong Reception, please tell a friend uh, and please let me know your thoughts at Strong Pod on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening and be safe. <laughs>